We are people who want to know how things end. I think about it uh, when we are at a fork in the road, a big decision to make. Do I go this way, choose this thing, or do I choose this thing instead? We're celebrating across three campuses those who are graduating from high school and they've had to make a big decision. Do I choose this college or this college? Or those of us, do I choose this career or this career instead? And if you're like me, there's always that statement of, I wish I could see what was at the end of the road. I wish I could see how this ended up so I knew which decision to make. We are people who want to know how things end. How many people in here, when you're reading a story and, and you wanna, you're not quite done with it, but you wanna see how things are going, so you turn to the last couple pages to see how the story ends. Anyone in here do that at all? Couple people showing us that Jesus still has some work to do in the lives of, of some of us. That's okay, that's okay. <clears throat> My wife Emily does something similar. In the rare occasions I get her to agree to watch a movie that I wanna watch. She will grab her phone, go to Wikipedia, and read the plot summary of what's going on. <clears throat> so she doesn't get caught unaware of, of anything that happens. I used to be so angry at her. I would, I would say, you're ruining the movie. And I say used to because recently I was watching a, a short that just won an Oscar, and I grabbed her phone and I hid it from her so she couldn't see the plot summary. Well, it happened to be one of the most devastating things I've ever seen. And so I spent the rest of the night just consoling my wife, saying, I am so sorry. Here's your phone back, though. (laughs) So I don't critique at least that part of her anymore. We are people who want to know how things end. And as Christians, we are not immune from this as well. There are some of us who go to these passages that talk about the end, and we study them with intense rigor to try to figure out what is it that God will do to make all things new. And there's a part of that that's good and beautiful. In our passage, Paul will, uh, will say, I do not want you to be unaware. It's good to study these passages like that. But the ultimate reason for giving us glimpses into the end, the ultimate reason for giving us passages that show us, not fully, but as we can understand it, how things will end, is to give us hope and encouragement. And I think we've gone past that at times. There are some of us who hold on to our beliefs about the end so tightly. There are some of us who go to passages like the one that we will read, not to find the good that's in it, but to find ammunition, a weapon to prove that we are right against other Christians. And that's missing it. That's not what we're called to do with this passage. And as a result, there's others of us who hear all the fighting going on, who see all the confusion and just say, I want nothing to do with it. And they miss the good of these passages as well. And that's not what we're called to do with these texts. So here is our encouragement for the day. Here is is our big takeaway that gives life and hope to those who hold on to this topic too tightly and those who don't hold on to it at all. And it comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you don't have one of these scripture journals, feel free to grab one. They are right in the back, uh, being modeled to you right where Matthew is, so you can grab one of them. Just a way for us to underline, highlight, circle things that are going on in the text so we can understand what it said and what it's saying to us now. And our big takeaway for today, chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, it says this, We will always be with the Lord 
and therefore encourage one another. That is our big takeaway. Circle that phrase right there. In fact, circle it twice. Circle it every time that we get frustrated today because we're not going into enough detail about how things end. Circle it every time that there's confusion of what does this mean? What does it mean for my life? What is it telling me how to live? Circle it every time that we need the greatest truth and certainty for our lives. We will always be with the Lord, therefore encourage one another. We are people who want to know how things end. And this church in Thessalonica that we've been reading about was not immune to that. They were suffering. There was pain going on in their lives. They were destined for affliction, we read in chapter 3, as all Christians are destined for affliction. All people who follow after Jesus will experience pain and hardship and hurts for doing exactly that. And in the midst of all of that, they had questions. If all this is going on in our lives, how do we know? How do we know what God's plan is for us? How do we know that there's a purpose even in the midst of all this pain and affliction? How do we know? And so Paul, Silas, and Timothy wrote to them this section of the letter. We are in our second to last week of going through 1 Thessalonians, this letter where these three men, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, commend the church of Thessalonica. They lived as an influence of all those around them. They were living in such a way that their lives impacted other people to follow Jesus more. And we saw that in the first three chapters of this letter. But now we get to this place where they can continue to grow more and more. See, kind of a thesis statement for this in chapter 3, right at the end, verses 11 through 13. It says this, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So, establish your hearts blameless in holiness, which comes from loving one another and from all at the coming of the Lord Jesus. And we saw a little bit of this last week with what is one specific way that this church can be blameless in holiness out of their love for others, this love which covers a multitude of sins. And we saw that in our passage last week. And now we're seeing more of how they can continue to be blameless in holiness at the coming of Jesus. How can they continue to live a life that reflects what God is calling us to, even to the point of Jesus coming? They were going through hard times. They were going through pain and affliction. It seems like even some of their church has died. Paul, Silas, and Timothy were there a short few months ago, and in that time span, some of them have now died and wondering, have they missed out? Are they worse off for not getting to be there when Jesus is coming back? How can we have hope for them? We ask questions too when confronted with death, when confronted with mortality. How can we have hope that this life is not all that there is? We're surrounded by a physical world, and that's all that we have an experience of is this physical world. How can we have hope that there is more than just this? We ask these questions when facing death. So Paul, Silas, and Timothy give them hope in the return of Jesus, in the coming of Jesus. Now, he doesn't give them a roadmap. 
He didn't say this is exactly how it's going to happen. He didn't say you need to perfectly figure out what all these symbols mean and then you'll get it right and unlock the key. He doesn't give them a calendar with a date circle that says, I'm coming back in Jesus' handwriting. He doesn't give them anything like that. But he gives them something more. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 through 5, 11, we will see that there is hope for those who are dead and those who are alive in the coming of Jesus so encourage one another. That sentence is going to kind of be our guide and structure throughout our time of going through that passage, so let me say it again for us. There is hope for those who are dead and those who are alive in the coming of Jesus, so encourage one another. And let's see if we see that in the text. There is hope for those who are dead. We'll start with that first part. Now, a lot of people come, as I said, to this passage to try to understand the end. What will it be like when Jesus comes back? What will the, how will it be that God makes all things new? And that's there. That we could see that in the passage. But that's not the primary focus of the passage. We go to this, this text to try to understand the end on a global scale, but it's first and foremost about the end on a personal scale. It is a passage that tells us about how we view death in Christianity, and the hope that we have for those even after they've died. Because again, they were asking these questions. How can we know that there's more going on? How can we know that they have not missed out? How can we know that they're not worse off because of it? We ask those questions as well. How can we know that there is hope even after we die? And we see that. We'll pick it up in verse 13. where it says this, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who fall asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. So it uses this euphemism, those who have fallen asleep. And and as you read through 4.13 to 5.11, I think it pops up four times in there. It's it's euphemism uh, for those who have died. So we don't want you to be informed about those who are died. Again, that's the entire focus. It's the header of this entire section that we do not grieve, circle that word grieve, like others do. Now, we can mishear this, and I want to make sure that we don't. We are not immune to sadness when a loved one dies. We do not critique other people's for mourning the loss of a friend or family or acquaintance. We don't, that's not what this text is saying. It is saying that there is real loss in loss, but there also is real hope and loss as well. Because look at what it says. Do not grieve and draw an arrow from grieve to those who have no hope. I know it's hard. It, you kind of have to squiggle around to get there, but it's fine. It just make it look as good as you can. Do not grieve like those who have no hope. It's a specific kind of grief that's being talked about here. Not grief broadly. We still get sad when, when there's loss because of this broken world. But do not grieve like those who have no hope. There are a variety of views of of what life after death looks like at this time, which there's a variety of views of what life after death looks like at this time that we're in now. But for the most part, in the culture that the Thessalonians would have been a part of, it was this life is what there is. Once you lose it, it's game over. There's exceptions, but for the most part, that was the case. And so it is a critique against that mindset that this life is all that there is because those who mourn when death is final, those who mourn when this life is it, 
Of course that's going to be a severe mourning. Of course that's going to be an extreme amount of grief because there is no hope. It is complete and utter hopelessness for those who are dead. But that is not the case for those who follow Jesus. There is hope for those who die. We do not grieve like those who don't have that hope. There is hope for those who are dead in Jesus. How do we know that? Look at verse 14. <clears throat> for, for is a very important word. It shows us the reason, the, the cause. For this very reason, we have hope. For, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So we do not mourn, we do not have grief in the same way as those who do not hope. Why? Because God, underline all this, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. The source of hope is that God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And as you write, read through the storyline of the Bible, it is a story that could be summarized, uh, summarized with God seeking to be with his people. In the garden, when things were perfect, Adam and Eve were able to walk in the cool of the day with God. They were with God. But when sin entered this world, when rebellion came, when choosing to follow what we think is right rather than what God knows is best for us, when that happened, we were not able to be with him. There was a separation. And if that was the end of the story, we definitely have cause to grieve. But that is not it. God sought after his people despite their fallenness, despite their rebellion. Throughout the Old Testament, God would establish places where he could be with his people. This was the, the tabernacle or the temple, if you know those stories. And if you don't, that's okay. These were places where God's presence would be and he could be with his people. But it still wasn't perfect. It wasn't what it was like before. Only certain people could be there at certain times of the year. So God then came to earth as a man, as Jesus, so that he could be with us and we could be with him. But even this, as a man, he could only be in so many places at once. He could only be with so many people at once. So through his death and resurrection, Jesus sets in place a way for us all to be with him. There is hope for those who have died because God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. The climax of the story that's been going on since mankind has been on this planet is fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. The climax of the story comes when those who have died are brought with God, God's people with God. And that is a source for hope. But how can we trust it? That's also, I think, in verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, circle that phrase, even so, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So even so means in this way or just as, in this very means that Jesus died and rose again, through Jesus, God will bring those to him that have fallen asleep. Jesus' death and resurrection is the proof that we can trust the gospel. Jesus' death and resurrection is the proof that we can trust that we will be with him at his coming. 
through this certainty that we have that Jesus has come, that Jesus has died, and Jesus has rose again for the forgiveness of all who believe in him. Through that same certainty, we can know he will one day come again. Through this, we see there is hope for those who have died. Through all of this, we see the climax of the story that's been building since mankind was here and could no longer be with him. Now we get to the point where it is God's people with God. We have to go a lot faster than this. You may have counted, there's about 18 verses, and we've done two of them. Uh, So we do need to go a little bit quicker. But if you are wondering, you're sitting there, okay, we've talked about end time stuff. Why aren't we going through that? Why why are we talking about all this so far? And if that's kind of building up in frustration for you, or you're getting concerned, like, I have things I need to do today. He's just going to keep talking this entire time. Here's our stress relief. Uh, Go to verses 17 and 18 again. Our big takeaway, when we feel like we need to be reminded of the great truth, we'll just go ahead and circle this again. We will always be with the Lord, therefore encourage one another. Anytime you need it, just keep circling it, and remember, things will be okay. But we do need to go faster. Uh, 15, it says this, For this we declare to you by a word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with a voice of an archangel, with a sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Okay, there's a lot of detail in there that, that sounds interesting or strange or what's going on with this. But again, I want to point out the emphasis here is not on the details. What did it say right at the beginning? We do not want you to be uninformed about those who have fallen asleep, about those who have died. It's good to study these details. It's good to go and look at other texts that talk about this. It's good to try to see what is God teaching us in these, but let's not miss out on the broad strokes, which is what we're supposed to get from this. The context is there is hope for those who have died. Where in this passage do we see hope for those who have died? And I think it comes to that word proceed uh, in verse 15. Underline the word proceed there. When we think about proceed, uh, it's normally uh, proceed in terms of time. So if I'm in a race, which I know is already not, not realistic, but if I'm in a race and I am in the lead, again, not realistic, I am preceding everyone else, right? I am in front. I am in first. That isn't the only way to understand proceed, and I think it's a different way here. Think of it like a king, A king proceeds over everyone else in the kingdom. They have more authority. They have uh, more, uh, they they are of higher quality or source than everyone else in a kingdom, right? They proceed over everyone else. We're talking about why can we have hope for those who have died? It says, those who are alive do not precede those who are dead. Do not have more value than those who are dead. Do not have more worth or stature than those who are dead. They do not precede them. And how do we know that? It's the end of verse 16. The dead in Christ will rise first. So what is it trying to tell us? Those who have died are not worse off than those who are alive at the coming of Jesus. The entire thing. We do not want you to be uninformed about those who have died. They are not worse off than those who are still alive. They will not miss out on a single aspect of Jesus coming again. And so what we can see throughout this text is there's hope for those who have died. 
Yes, we can go through these details. Yes, we can see a little bit more about what the end is like, but the ultimate reason Paul is writing this letter is not the details. The ultimate reason Paul is writing this section is so that we can see there's hope for those who have died. It is, it's kind of a crude way of putting this, first and foremost, a passage for funerals, not a passage for looking at the end. It's there, but it's mostly giving us the hope for those who have died. Now, lest we overreact and say, well, maybe it's better off to be dead. Like, look at all the hope that's for them. There's hope for those who are alive as well at the coming of Jesus. And let's finish off chapter 4. It says this, then we who are alive, do you see that shift there? We who are alive, who are left will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord, therefore encourage one another with these words. So again, there's some interesting details here. They'll be caught up with him in the clouds. Like, what, what, is, what is going on in this passage? It's good to look at the details, but let's get the overarching thing, the broad stroke that Paul, Silas, and Timothy want us to take away, which is just as there is hope for those who have died, there is hope for those who are alive. The climax of the story, God striving to be with his people, is filled in the coming of Jesus because, and we can circle this if we want, we will always be with the Lord, therefore encourage one another with these words. Are you starting to see what our takeaway should be from this passage? We'll keep going with it. So there is hope for those who have died, and there is hope for those who are alive. Where? In the coming of Jesus. We talked about this kind of throughout. The coming of Jesus, the certainty that Jesus will come back. That is the source of hope for those who are dead and those who are alive. And we might be getting to that section where, okay, now we get to go through those details, right? Now we get to figure out what is it that it's trying to tell us about the end. And here's where I'm not going to satisfy you, unfortunately. Again, the details are good. It is important to look through them. It's important to study God's word however he reveals it to us. But we just don't have the capacity to go through all these details right now. Some of that is, you saw how long it took me to do two verses, right? Uh, to go through all of these details and then to pull in all of the other texts that talk about the end, we got to go to uh, Matthew 24. We got to go to all uh, chapters of the book of Revelation. We got to go back to Exodus where we first see that trumpet sound. We got to go to Daniel and Ezekiel. And if you think that I could do all that in the next 10-ish minutes, oh man, you you have higher views of me than I think you should. And so we have to go through so much of this text to understand these details, but also it's important to focus on there are so many different ways within Christianity to interpret a passage like this. What did I refer to as those people as? They are within Christianity. We can be brothers and sisters in Christ with people who land differently on reading this passage about the end. There are a variety of ways of reading this passage, and so we want to acknowledge that. And if there are a variety of ways of landing on the details, the important part for us should be what is the broad stroke that we would all agree on? What is the broad thing that Paul, Silas, and Timothy are telling us that is the source of our hope? And if that isn't satisfying to you, I have something for you to do. Go to 14, 17, and 18 and circle this phrase. We will always be with the Lord, therefore encourage one another. This is our takeaway. 
This is the source of our hope. This is what we need to be walking away with, linked arm in arm with other Christians, believing that there will be a return of Jesus, and that is a source of hope for us. Everything else is things that we can strengthen each other by, but it's not what we're supposed to focus on in this text. And if we still, aren't, or if we still are dissatisfied by not going through the details, encourage you, listen to the weekly this, this week. We'll be talking about some of those details, some, not all of them. The podcast that we have will go through a little bit of this. But what are the broad strokes? What does this passage tell us broadly that all Christians, since Jesus has, has left this world, what have we all been able to nod our head in agreement on from this text? And I see four things, four truths about Jesus coming that is the source of our hope from this text. And the first is, it will happen. There is certainty in the fact that Jesus will come back. There is certainty that Jesus will one day come to bring the climax of the story of us with God. It will happen, and we can find hope in that. I think we saw that in chapter 4, verse 14. It said, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, in the same way that we can trust that Jesus died and rose again, we can trust that he will return. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Jesus himself even gave us this certainty. While he was on this planet, he, he spoke in John chapter 14, and he said, he said this. If you have a full Bible, you can turn there. If not, follow along on the screen or, or just listen to, to these words from Jesus. Uh, John chapter 14, starting in verse 1, it says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Okay, there's a lot that I want to get to, but I'm going to pause really fast. This is the, this is the reason for everything. The glimpse into how things will end, the, the giving us a little bit of understanding of how God will make all things new, the purpose of it is right there, so that our hearts will not be troubled. If we get to a place where we are troubled by this stuff, if we get to a place where we are causing trouble in the lives of other Christians by our views of the end, then we are missing what Jesus is calling for us to have. Let not your hearts be troubled. And that is why he's given us this hope and the encouragement of what God will do. Okay, I've already made that point before. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. There's no wishy-washiness in that phrase, right? I will come again and take you to myself. God's people with God. That where I'm going, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. There is certainty that Jesus will come back. So where do we find hope in that? It will happen. Second thing, second reason why we find hope in the coming of Jesus is that uh, it will be a glorious event. Look at verse 16. It says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And again, there's a lot of symbols right there, and we don't have time to unpack them because we've got to go through all those other passages that I've talked about. But if you look through them, you will see that in each of these places that God is telling us what will happen at the end, he is proving to us that he will keep all of his promises. And this is an event that's full of fanfare, not just mere pomp and circumstance, 
circumstance, but it is a glorious event in which God keeps his promises. And because it is that way, because it is such an earth-altering event, a, a landmark moment in the history of humanity that changes what it will be like afterwards, we can look at that and say it will be glorious. A cry, a command, voice of the archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God. We look at that and we say, that is glorious. And there's also a specific reason why I'm using that word. And many of you might already know this. So our, the movement that we belong to, the Evangelical Free Church of America, recently changed uh, a part of its doctrinal statement. Now, that can sound really scary to folks. Oh, we no longer believe what we used to believe? That's not it. We didn't lose anything in this change, but we gained so much more. We've talked about how there's a variety of ways of reading passages like this that Christians land differently on. And in our previous uh, wording of our doctrinal statement, we held to one specific reading of passages like this, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. You can be within Christianity and do that. But it did limit our ability to be with other brothers and sisters in Christ in eager expectation and hope of the coming of Jesus. And so with this change, it allows us to do what this text is calling us to do, which is find the hope that comes from, the, uh, from Jesus coming back. And so we can link arm in arm with fellow believers in eager anticipation of that with this wording of it. Now, I, I want to be completely transparent, so I want to share with us what the statement now says. This is the Evangelical Free Church statement of faith on Jesus' return. It says, we believe in the personal, bodily, and glorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ. The coming of Christ at the time known only to God demands constant expectancy, and as our blessed hope motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. That is what we believe will happen when Jesus comes. And with that, we link arm in arm with other Christians and say it will be glorious. Third thing that all Christians can see hope in Jesus coming from. Third thing that we see clearly in this text, more so than details that we might come to disagreements on, we all look at this and we say, Jesus in his coming will bring all people to himself. We've talked about this quite a few times, but I don't want to miss how amazing of a moment this is. From the very first pages of the Bible, God has been striving to be with his people, and in the coming of Jesus, that story finds its climax, it finds its fulfillment. Those who have died before he comes, those who are still alive at the time that he comes, find their hope when they are brought to be with God always. Fourth and last thing in this section about where we find hope in the coming of Jesus is, is that it tells us how we should live as a response to that. We don't have to wonder what does life look like until Jesus comes. We find a hope in, the, in being told how we should eagerly await this. And that is we live expectantly, as it was in our doctrinal statement. We live in a way that expects this to happen. And this is what I think chapter 5 is all about. How do we live in a way that expects Jesus to return? How do we live in a manner that, that allows us to, to wait in eager anticipation for Jesus' return? And 
We don't have time to fully go through all of, of these verses here. That's why Matthew read it out before. But I'm going to grab a couple of verses that help us understand the whole. So look at uh, chapter 5, verse 2. It says this. It says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Underline that phrase, thief in the night. So as you read the next couple of verses, it talks about how the world will seem to be flourishing. Things seem to be going really well for those who are living apart from God. And it's in a moment like that, that Jesus will come to bring all of his people with himself and to bring judgment and justice on all sins. So in a moment that is unexpected, Jesus will come like a thief in the night. But we're not called to live like that. It says later on, we, it will not catch us off guard, those of us who are following following Jesus, because we live in an expected way. And this is described to us in, in verse 6 of how we are to live. It says, so let us not then sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Now, this is a great reminder that this is a figurative language. So those of you who slept a full eight hours last night, you're not in sin. It was okay that you slept last night. It's figurative sleeping here. It's let us not be caught off guard. Let us not be unaware. Let us not be taken in a way that we're not alert. Instead, let us be awake and underline awake. Let us be expecting this. Let us be aware. Just like a thief in the night comes when it's dark and is easy to get what it wants, we are awaiting it. And so we are not caught off guard. We are awake. We are alert. We are prepared for this moment. Now, when we think about preparing for such an earth altering events. Maybe a couple images go into our mind. Maybe we go back to the start of this pandemic when people were being prepared by buying all of the toilet paper. Or maybe we go to more recent events when uh, there was the prospect of a gas shortage, so people were prepared by filling up trash bags full of gasoline, thus creating a gas shortage. Or maybe we think being prepared about Jesus' return is we just need to read all of these symbols. We need to figure out perfectly which each detail means so that we can know the exact way that Jesus will come and how, uh, where he will come and what day he will come. Maybe we need to perfectly understand all of these passages about the end so that we're not uh, unaware. But that's not what it tells us to do. How do we live in an expectant way? How do we live in a way that's prepared? It is holiness. It is not about hoarding. It is about holiness. And we see this. Look at in chapter 5, verse 8. It says this, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So we saw faith, hope, and love show up in chapter 1, verse 3, right at the introduction. And we, we talked about how this was kind of like a, a Christian triad that summarized how uh, all believers of Jesus were called to live, a life that's defined by faith, by hope, and by love. So Christians are to live in this way, in expectation, in a pursuit of holiness until the day that Jesus returns. It's to live in a way uh, that is reflecting and is following what Jesus calls us to live until the very day that it comes. Now, this is not some scare tactic. It isn't, you need to live a very good life. You need to try really, really hard to live a perfect life because you don't know when Jesus is coming back. And if he catches you the day after you sinned, you're completely out of it. That's not it at all. 
It is instead because we are so shaped by the certainty of Jesus' death and resurrection, we are shaped by the certainty that Jesus will come again and our hope causes us to live in a way that reflects and models him, to live in a way that is defined by expectancy, to live in a way that is defined by following after him and him alone in a pursuit of holiness. There's hope for those who have died, and for those who are alive in the coming of Jesus. Well, what do we do with that? How do we live in light of that hope? We encourage one another. We see this at the end of chapter 4 and verse 18, uh, which we've been circling quite a few times, so you better remember that. Circle it again if you forgot it already. Uh, And then we see it in chapter 5, verse 11, which says the exact same thing. Therefore, encourage one another. So because of this hope, we encourage one another. And I thought there's two ways that stuck out to me of how we can encourage other Christians about this hope. This life is not all that there is, so we draw from the age to come. This life is not all that there is, so we prepare for the age to come. I'm quite certain that I need to unpack those. Uh, So the first one, uh, this life is not all that there is, so we draw from the age to come. And here's what I mean by that. We find hope in the coming of Jesus, that he will make all things new, that he will right every wrong, that we get to find the climax of the story of God's people with God. Now, at the end of the story, there's an eternity's worth. There are pages and pages and pages still to be written of us with God but it finds its climax in the coming of Jesus. And we know that he will wipe away every tear from every eye. We know that we will be reunited with those loved ones that, have been, that we've lost due to this world that just takes and takes from us. And that is a future that is glorious to us. It brings us so much joy, and we cannot wait to be there. But we aren't there yet. We are with God, but we're not with God to the extent that we want to be, that we will be someday. There is still pain in this world. There is still death in this world. There is still so much that is wrong and broken here. And so how do we find hope in the most hopeless of times? We draw from the hope that is to come. We draw from the glorious future that we have, the certainty that we have this, and find that as fruit and nourishment for now. Because we can be certain this is how things will go, we can find hope now knowing that that is the case. So we encourage each other in the most hopeless of times, reminding that this life is not all that there is, so we draw from the age to come. Those who said this life is not all that there is, so we prepare for the age to come. We spur each other on to holiness. We're called to live in this holy way, to prepare, to be expectant for Jesus' return. So we live for him and him alone. But we need people to help spur us on to holiness, that it's easy to fall into the trap that this life is all that there is. All we can see is this physical world around us. All that we have is, is things that fill up the calendar and those finite and they're, they're for this world now. We fill our lives up with this world now. It's easy to fall in that trap. So we need people to encourage us, to remind us that this life is not all that there is. So we prepare for the age to come. We live in this expectant life in the pursuit of holiness 
spurred on by other people in our lives. And this is why we talk about community life. This is why we talk about getting you guys in groups. It's not so we can keep our eyes on you guys. No, it's because of this. We encourage one another. You cannot encourage one another if we do not have someone in our lives. And we cannot be someone else's one another if we are not in their life. So this is why we push to get you in groups, men's, women's, life groups, whatever it may be. We push for that so you can live in the way that we have been called to live, preparing and drawing from the age to come. There's so much more in this passage that we could talk about. And I know that's scary because we're already short on time, but we won't, I promise, at least not yet. There's so much that we can draw from this. There are so many details that we could try to figure out what they mean. There, there's so much more that we could talk about the coming of Jesus. But we want to look on this key part. There is hope. There is hope. Paul gives the encouragement to the Thessalonians. And it's the same encouragement that we should take, that this world seeks to steal from us that hope that it wants us to believe in the lie that this life is all that there is. It wants to believe us uh, that it's, it's useless to try to prepare for something that we can't even prove exists. It wants us to, to, to give up to, to, or to give into the temptation and just be really good boys and girls so that we don't miss out on Jesus' coming. There are so many lies that we can believe about the coming of Jesus. So that's why it's important to focus on the certain truths that we find in the text. There is hope for those who are dead. There is hope for those who are alive in the coming of Jesus. So encourage each other. And because of that, we find great peace and joy and comfort in these words. We will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another. Hey, here's an idea. Why don't you circle that phrase? Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father, we are so grateful for the truth and certainty that you are coming back, that you do not leave us to try to figure out this life on our own, to try to stir up hope within us on our own because we couldn't do that. We would constantly fall short. But because we can trust that you have died and rose again, we can trust that you are coming back. You said you would. And so in that, we find great hope.